Hello, my name's Gwen Bachman, and I've been coming to Faith for six-ish years and helping in the middle and high school for three and a half, I think. Um, and I'm going to read Matthew 12, 22 through 37. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul that the prince of demons, uh, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom is divided against itself, is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But, but if it is the, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is God's word. Well, thanks, Gwen, and good morning to each of you. It's good to see you here today. As many of you are aware, we are in the midst of a succession planning process. Last March, our elders formed a succession team that is to, uh, to, to design and lead a process whereby, first of all, we find my successor, successor, and secondly, whereby we discern what my role will be here at Faith once I'm no longer uh, the senior pastor here. And uh, as you may know, it's, it's uh, the desire of Brenda and me to continue here at Faith in Manhattan, walking into the future with you and uh, serving alongside you uh, as long as God allows I want to give a brief update. Uh, as you may know, we've hired a succession firm, uh, a firm to actually do the do the search for us. It's a great firm. It's out of Houston, Vonderblumen, and uh, we have a, a representative there named Rick. And uh, this past week, the search uh, for my successor went live. So if you go to our web page, at the top of our homepage, you'll see a button that says Pastoral Search. And if you click that, uh, you'll see all sorts of information. You'll see a video. You'll see uh, write-ups that hopefully gives an accurate um, picture of who we are as a church. 
and also gives a, a profile of the type of pastor that we are, are seeking here at Faith. And so I would encourage uh, each of you to go and check that out and, and learn uh, more specifically what we're, we're going for there. But also, if you know of someone who you think might be a good fit for that position, uh, direct them to the website, and they'll learn about the church and about the position as well. You, they will find out there how they might apply if they want to become a potential candidate for that, that position. In terms of a timeline, uh, our representative uh, hopes to get our search team three to five names for us to consider, what they, they, people that they think are um, good fits for us by the end of March. And at that point, uh, our search team and our elders, there will be a discernment process to see if uh, one of those might be the man that we would put forward to the church uh, as, as the next lead pastor. And ultimately, our membership will vote on that, that position. And it's our desire that we have this person in place in Manhattan by this summer, and that may sound overly optimistic. Uh, sometimes these searches take much longer, but it's, it's possible. So we're trusting in God's provision and in God's timing. And because of the importance of this, this uh, season in the life of the church, our elders are calling us to pray for every, every phase uh, of this transition at faith. And so this morning, I'd like for you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, today we are thankful for many, many things. <clears throat> Your provision of this building that is warm and dry is surely one of those things. Thank you for the spaces we have to worship and meet, for fellowship and study and service. This is all an expression of your generosity toward us. And Father, we're thankful for your faithfulness throughout the life of this church. You have kept every promise that you have made to us. You have never been inconsistent with your character. You've sovereignly led us, you've provided for us, and you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And fathers, we've come to this significant time in the history of this church <clears throat> as we anticipate the changes that are coming. We pray for ourselves. We pray that we might walk in humility, all of us throughout this process. We know that you give grace to the humble and that you withhold grace from those who care mainly about themselves and who walk in pride. And so, God, we readily admit that we need massive amounts of grace during this season. And so we pray that we might walk in humility, expose our pride, empower us to walk in humility. And Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray fervently, to pray in faith, to pray in the Spirit, to pray according to your will. And as we do, we trust that you will answer in your wisdom and you will answer in power. And God, it's our desire that at the end of this search that we'll have greater unity and greater confidence in you. We pray, God, that you would provide the next lead pastor here at Faith. Give wisdom and discernment to the search team and to our elders at every step of this process. We pray you would surface the man that you want to be the lead pastor here at Faith. And God, we're praying for someone who loves you with all of his heart, soul, and strength. We're praying for someone with a genuine love for people, both those that are followers of Christ as well as those who don't yet know him. 
We're praying for someone who would love this church in our current condition, but who would want better and deeper things for us spiritually in the future. We're praying for someone who loves your word, who loves to study and meditate on your word, who loves to practice your word, who loves to teach the scriptures, has the skill to do so. So God, we're asking you to provide this person and your timing. We pray that you would make it clear to him and to us. Fathers, our country commemorates Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow. Our minds turn to the issues uh, to which he gave his life, uh, especially the issue, the hard issue of racial reconciliation. We pray for our country that we might make progress when it comes to issues of racism and prejudice and discrimination. We pray for the church in America. We pray for Faith Manhattan Church, that we as disciples of Jesus might be humble and empathetic and teachable about these issues. Help us to live in light of the fact that through the gospel, you are in the process of creating a kingdom comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray, God, that our thoughts and words and actions might reflect that every single person we meet has been created in your image and therefore deserves our compassion our love. God, we look around at our world and it's full of strife, it's full of warfare, and it's often because of race. And God, we we admit that we as humanity, we are clueless, we're powerless to do anything about it. This world is not getting better. But we believe that the death and resurrection and enthronement of Jesus are powerful and sufficient to change the human heart, ultimately to transform cities and nations. And so for this, we pray. Fathers, we turn to your word now. We echo the prayer of Psalm 25. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember a time a few years ago when I was uh, back home visiting my mom and my brothers. There were probably eight or ten of us sitting around the dinner table, and uh, somebody asked a question. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember if it was about a fact or an, an opinion, but out of my mouth, seemingly out of nowhere, I said, why don't we ask, and I pointed to one of my brothers, I said, why don't we ask him? He knows everything. And there was this this awkward silence, and people were looking back and forth between him and me, him and me. And then somebody changed the subject, and that's how we resolve conflict in my family. And we just went on with that. But I've been thinking about that for years, and I want to know, what happened there? Where do those words come from, seemingly out of the blue? Why did I say that at that moment? Well, Jesus in our passage today is going to solve that mystery. We're going to take three weeks and we're going to just look at the the truth about words. There are some things that the Bible tells us about words that you won't hear anywhere else. And today we're going to look at, at, at the source of our words from Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37. And the scriptures we're going to consider throughout this throughout this short series are going to apply to the words that we speak with our mouths the words that we think 
in our heads, in our hearts, the words that we text, the words that we email, the words we put out on social media, it, it applies to every word that proceeds from us. And so there's relevance for all of us. Today's passage, we're going to see two truths, and then I want to give two, uh, three simple responses, should you care to respond to what we hear today. The first one's pretty staggering, but Jesus says in verses 22 through 32 that it is possible to say things that are unforgivable. It's possible to say things that are unforgivable. As Gwen read, there was a, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. He was brought to Jesus. And, and, and certainly in the Bible, not every, probably not many, most of, of, the, of the illnesses that, that Jesus encountered uh, had anything to do with uh, demonic activity. But in this case, apparently it did because Jesus uh, cast the demon out and he healed this man so that he could speak and so that he could see. The crowd was amazed, but the Pharisees were threatened. And they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. In other words, Satan is the power behind him casting out that demon. And Jesus said, no, actually, I cast out this demon by the Spirit of God. And so for the Pharisees, this wasn't some minor theological error. It's not that they're like, oh, oh, I didn't understand. No, when, the son, when, when God himself showed up in the flesh and he bared his arm and he cast out this demon, they attributed it to God's enemy, not the spirit of God. And so uh, this was a, a catastrophic uh, orientation that was different that was, was uh, in error here. And in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. The word blasphemy simple, simply means slander. <clears throat> and Jesus says that generally, blasphemy, just like every other sin, it's forgivable. In other words, when we say things, slanderous things about God, it is forgivable if we repent. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, he said, he just never got over it. He said, before Christ, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but I received mercy. So this is good news that when Jesus says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Anybody who repents, anybody who asks for forgiveness will receive it. But he says, <clears throat> back there. He said, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so this blasphemy or this slander against the Spirit that will not be forgiven, that's what the Pharisees had done when they attributed to Satan something that the Spirit of God had done. Jesus pointed out that their logic was just, just irrational. Satan would not uh, cast out one of his demons. <clears throat> they were on his side. He had no reason why he would cast out one of his own demons. And uh, by rejecting with their words, they spoke these words, uh, 
they rejected the irrefutable obvious evidence that Jesus had acted in the power of the Spirit. When they did that, they were consciously, willfully rejecting what God was doing in this world. Uh, Jesus said in verse 28 that the kingdom of God had come upon them. They rejected the kingdom of God. And so their opposition to God was so steadfast that they would never repent. Therefore, their blasphemy was unforgivable. And in our day, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be persistent, unrelenting rejection of Jesus Christ. If you fully and finally reject Jesus Christ, you're out of options. Jesus said, I, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so if you fully and finally reject Christ, you're out of options. If you say, I reject him, and you never turn to him, then you've committed this sin. And sometimes believers are troubled over some sin that they've committed, perhaps in a habitual sin, and they wonder, I wonder if I've committed the unpardonable sin. And as many, many people have pointed out, if, if you're really concerned about that, you probably haven't committed this sin. The person who should be concerned is the person who says, I'm not sinful, I don't need a Savior, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, and nobody and nothing is going to change my view on that. And I would just tell you that, that uh, if that's you, I wouldn't go pronouncing yourself, pronouncing, I've committed the unpardonable sin. We certainly don't pronounce that on other people. But if you have blasphemed God, blasphemed the Spirit, and rejected Him, and you've announced that to people, there was a time when Paul did that. He seemed to be beyond the reach of God, but he wasn't. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. If you take a glance at God, you take a step toward God, you open up the possibility, God, will you show me if you're who you say you are? God will do amazing things. God can open eyes. He can save souls. He can bring you to a place where you are, are as accepted in his kingdom as Jesus himself. The second thing we see from this passage is that our words flow from our hearts. And let's not miss what Jesus has done here. He's established that the Pharisees who stood before him, not all Pharisees, but the ones who stood before him and uttered the, the, the worst possible words anybody could say. They had said something that was unforgivable. And what we're going to see is because their words reflected what, were, what was in their hearts. In the beginning of verse 33, Jesus explains the source of their words and the source of everybody's words. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And so Jesus is making this simple point that, that the fruit of a tree is an accurate indicator of the health of the tree. Good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. Specifically, he's talking about the Pharisees here. That's the fruit he had in mind. Their words were bad, they were evil, because the Pharisees were bad. They were evil. Jesus makes this explicit in verse 34. 
he says, you brood of vipers. In the Bible, it's never a good, it's never a good, good thing when you're called a snake, okay? So he says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? The reason they spoke evil is because they were evil. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks from the abundance or the overflow of our hearts. And we tend to not think this. Maybe you've heard somebody say this. Maybe you've said this. You said, you know, I say, I say horrible, despicable, uh, offensive things, but I'm really a good person. It's, it's, this is not me. Well, uh, our, our words don't lie. Our, our mouth speaks from whatever fills our hearts. And that's a brutal diagnosis, but it's true. Our words reveal what we've stored up in our hearts. Verse 35 says, Jesus points out that it cuts both ways. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So good words come from a good heart. Evil words come from an evil heart. And of course, nobody is 100% one or the other. Most of us are this incoherent mixture of both. But whether good or evil, our mouths speak from the abundance of our hearts. Again, our words are an accurate reflection of our hearts. If you don't believe that, verses 36 and 37 won't make any sense to you. But if you believe that, they make perfect sense. Jesus says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. Or by your words, you will be condemned. That's a staggering thing to say. You may, if you've ever read 1 John, John is very compelling. He says that our, our actions are an accurate reflection of our hearts. He says, somebody says, I love God, but doesn't love his neighbor. John says, they're just lying. That's not the case. God is love. If you know God, you will act differently. And in a similar way, uh, Jesus says that our words reflect whether or not we know God. And so it's not that our deeds or our words save us. They don't. But our words are such an objective indicator of what's in our hearts that our words can be used to discern whether or not we know God, therefore to, to reflect our eternal destiny. So it is true that by our words we will be justified. Just look at this person's words. It's obvious that they bowed the knee to Jesus and that they've been born from above. Look at this person's words. It's obvious that they don't have any clue who God is. They have no love for God, no understanding of who he is. And so here's the truth about our words. Our words flow from our hearts. Our words don't lie about the content of our hearts. They're an accurate indication of our hearts. Now, of course, occasionally we misspeak. You know, sometimes we, we, we say things that we really 
We don't, we don't actually sit like I do here sometimes. We say words and we realize, oh, I said the wrong word. Or sometimes we have a hard time expressing ourselves. That's not what we're talking about here. We need to give each other tons of grace when it comes to our speech. I'm not in any way suggesting we should pounce on every word that the people around us say. That's exhausting. It, it really is. But over the course of a week or a month or a year, you look at a person's words and you say, that's an accurate indication of what's in that person's heart. It's accurate on whether that person has a genuine faith in Jesus and love for God or not. And so remember the story I told at the beginning of this message when I pointed to my brother and said, why don't we ask him? He knows everything. Well, the mystery solved. That didn't come out of the blue. That came out of my heart. For some reason, I don't even remember the circumstances, but I had this bitterness, this anger built up for him. He had said some things in the, in the previous days, and my heart was full of that. And the first chance my heart got, it just overflowed with, through my words, and I said that hurtful, unkind thing to my brother in the midst of my entire family that was gathered. Our words flow from our hearts. So that's a simple truth, but it has enormous implications. And in our time remaining, I want to suggest three simple ways we can respond to this truth that our words flow from our hearts. First of all, uh, Scripture suggests we should pray. We see that many places in the Bible pray about our words and about our hearts. <clears throat> Ask God to show you whatever you need to know about, about your heart. Psalm 139 is a, an amazing passage in which David talks about God's personal, exhaustive omniscience of him. He says, God knows me exhaustively. He knows the words I'm going to speak before I speak them. He knows all my actions. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. You get to the end of that psalm and David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It says God, so basically he's saying, God, you know everything about me. Will you show it to me? Will you unfold it to me so that I can know how I ought to live rightly? And in the context of our words, if we want to want to have words that are pleasing in God's sight, we need to have hearts that are pleasing in God's sight. In Psalm 19, 14, David prayed this. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so he understood that God cares not only about the words that we speak, he cares about the words that we think. He understood that it's not enough to be, to be people who technically don't sin with the, way, the things that we say, uh, but, but we need to be people who are blameless when it comes to the things that we think. He didn't want it said about him what was said about the people in Isaiah's day. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's kind of a classic def definition of a hypocrite. You have this face, you look like you, from your appearance and the words you mouth that you, you honor God, but your heart is far from him. So let me just pause and have you consider just, just 
in your own mind, answer the question, do you really want to know the truth about your words? Do you really want to know the truth about your words? Are you open to the possibility that there are blind spots, which by definition you cannot see, blind spots in the way you speak, the effect of your words? Do you want to know that or not? A deeper question is, do you want, it to, do you want to be able to, to say, God, I not only want to honor you with the words of my mouth, but also the meditations of my heart? Are you willing to, to, to invite God into that place in your life? If you're not, it's best to admit it. I would strongly advise it. You, you invite God. God changed my heart on this. Honestly, I don't want that, but I want to want it. If you do want this, pray what David prays. You can pray these psalms verbatim. And whatever uh, God shows you, receive it as a good gift to you and a good gift to everybody in your life. It really will be that. And so pray. The second thing I would, I would uh, recommend is that you listen. Listen to the words that you speak and the words that you think in your mind, in your heart. We're often very aware of the way that other people speak. And it's very obvious when you encounter someone else whose words are life-giving or death-dealing. But many times we're, so, we're, we're just oblivious to the way that we come off and uh, we don't have any idea of the things that, that uh, need to be mended in our lives. And so this week, when you walk away from a conversation, I would encourage you to do a little evaluation. Just as you walk away, you say, okay, uh, let me rehearse that. What, what did I actually say? How did I say it? And maybe even, why did I say it? Or when you're alone and you're stewing over something, pondering something, and you're, maybe you're, you're in the midst of a conflict or, or, or you're, you're thinking about a relationship. And just evaluate, what are the words I'm thinking in the, in the meditations of my heart? And just listen to yourself. And by the way, as I, I know that I have, uh, I have a lot of conversations with people, many of you in the room, uh, some of you even lately. And you may be out there, <laughs> you may be out there wondering, is, is Steve thinking about me right now? <laughs> Let me just put your minds at rest. Yes, I'm thinking about you. Absolutely. I'm thinking about everybody in the room. I'm thinking about myself especially. What we're talking about here is relevant to everybody. And so listen to yourself. Listen to what you say. And God will likely show you things both good and bad. And don't be afraid of either. If you see things good in your life, virtues in your life that are reflected in your speech. That's the work of God. If you see bad, if you see bad things that need to be corrected, receive that. 
God is a good heavenly father who, who loves to discipline his children. And so, for example, you might notice self-centeredness. You might walk away from a conversation and think, why do I dominate every single conversation that I have? Why do I talk and talk and talk about myself? Why don't I ask questions more? Why do I feel like I have to say everything I know about? Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. That's why I give that example. Or you may walk away from a conversation and you may recognize, wow, I spoke words of compassion in that situation. A couple years ago, I was out in the foyer. I was talking to one of our, our middle school students here at Faith. And uh, as we were talking, I mentioned something. She asked me, how are you doing? And I think I mentioned something that was kind of hurtful or, or hard or painful. And just spontaneously, this expression of compassion came forth for her. And I walked away going, wow, she has a heart of compassion because it just came out just spontaneously in the spur of the moment. And so that may be you. You may walk away from conversations. You may see compassion. You may see joy, kindness. You may recognize patience, wisdom. Or you may notice contempt, anger, divisiveness. But listen to what you think and say. Listen to what you say in your family, in the workplace, and in the church. Listen to what you say to your friends, what you say or think about your enemies, what you say or think about people that you disagree with. You know, this is 2024. It's an election year. If there's every year where we need to pay attention to what we think, the meditations of our heart, and the words of our mouth, it's in a, a, an election year politically. The way we think and speak about politics. Is there any difference between us and people don't have any, any don't know, make any profession to know God, the God of the universe? There ought to be a radical difference in how we think and speak. If we listen to ourselves, we will learn much about our hearts. Finally, treasure. Treasure up God's word in your heart. Since our mouths speak from the abundance of our hearts, we need to have an abundance of the word filling our hearts. In Psalm 119.11, the psalmist prayed this. He said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Another translation says, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The psalmist understood that if he treasured up God's word in his heart, that he would be able to avoid sin. And that would certainly include sins of the tongue. And so this could be like reason 137 why we should study the Bible. There are many, many reasons. One reason is because when we treasure the word in our hearts, it informs what we say. It gives us a reservoir of wisdom and virtue. God's word will give us ways of thinking and speaking that we would never otherwise have. And the Bible, when you think about it, is fundamentally about God. I mean, the Bible is about God, but it also speaks about people, about humanity, especially in relation to God. And the Bible has much to say about how God treats us in Christ. He wants us. He loves us. He's gracious to us 
even when he disciplines us. And the New Testament ethics ethic, when it comes to our behavior, it basically says how God in Christ has treated us, that's how we should treat one another. And so because God has been gracious to us, we should be gracious to one another. God forgave us. Therefore, we should be forgiving toward other people. And certainly that should come out in our speech and the words that we say. Unless we saturate our hearts with Scripture, we will forget. And I'm just astounded for myself just how easy it is to forget how gracious God has been to me. And the tendency when we forget that, how he's treated us, it was we rationalize treating others poorly and we justify speaking harsh, unkind words to other people. Well, they deserved it, forgetting that when we deserved it, Christ died for us. Don't approach the Bible the way you approach the, the uh, owner's manual in your car. Don't approach it like you're going to troubleshoot. I've got this problem. I'm going to dip in. I'm going to get a verse, and I'm out of here. I'm not going to look at it again. Now, the vision we have in Scripture is we're to love God so wholeheartedly and love his word and crave to know what he's revealed to us, that we think about it all day long, evening, morning, and noon. And when we do, we experience the new covenant promise found in Jeremiah 31. God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And so instead of God's word being something out there where we think, oh, yeah, I think God said something about, he said something about that, I don't really, yeah, whatever. No, we, that's not our experience with the word. The word takes up residence in our lives, and it lives within us. He writes it on our heart, and so from an eternal place, we know what God loves. We know what he wants. We think the way he thinks. Even we can, we can feel the way he feels, and that informs the way we speak, the way we, the way we talk to other people. And there's no shortcuts. And so think in terms of months and years when you think about treasuring up God's word, not merely hours and days. And so this week, I challenge you to begin this process of diagnosing what is true about your words. Ask God to show you what's true. Listen to your words. Then treasure up God's word in your heart and see if he doesn't do some dramatic things when it comes to your speech. Next week, we're going to consider what the book of James has to say about our words. There's a, an em emphasis there. We're going to look at the three scriptures at the bottom of your sermon outline. And uh, I just got to warn you, there's, there's no place to hide when it comes to the book of James. I mean, God's word is very, very, very honest with us, which is a great gift. And so if you would, please read, think about those scriptures before next Sunday morning. God, thank you for your word. God, we would be um, so lost if you hadn't revealed your mind to us. Thank you, God, that there is a path for every single one of us in Christ Jesus, to have words and meditations of our heart that are pleasing to you. God, you can renovate our hearts through your word. And God, you've given us the body of Christ. You've given us the spirit. You've given us the word. And so, God, we pray that this week we would enter fully into this process. We want to be people that know the truth about our words, that pray 
about our words and that uh, have words that actually honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Break.